Today's reading is from Genesis 15, 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is great to be here today. Uh, My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you're probably well aware, last Sunday fell during Memorial Day weekend. So if you weren't at church, fear not. Uh, Neither was I. I was at home visiting uh, my parents, my mom and my dad, and it was wonderful to spend time with them. They've been facing a lot of tough stuff lately uh, medically, and so it was a gift uh, for me to be there, just like it is a real gift for me to be back here today. Um, I missed you, church, and I am excited to dive into the book of Genesis in just a few moments. Uh, But before we get there, I have to tell you about a dumb decision I made about 10 years ago. Uh, It was the summer of 2010 and I was living in downtown Chicago. Here's a photo from that summer. Oh, look at those sweet faces. I I do love the city. Uh, So I'm in downtown Chicago. I'm living in Greektown. When I get a call from my buddy, Ryan, and some band that Ryan loved was gonna be visiting the city and so Ryan had found a couple prime tickets to the show on Craigslist. Now who remembers Craigslist? Okay, it's like the scarier, older version of Facebook Marketplace. Uh, So Ryan found these tickets on Craigslist, and he wanted two tickets, and they were about $200 each. And so our plan was Ryan's going to bank transfer $400 to my account, I'm going to get that cash out, and I'm going to go meet this Craigslist buyer to get these tickets. So Ryan sent the money, and I got the cash, and I'm on my way to some random address in the city when it hits me. This is how I'm going to die. Uh, I'm headed to a place that I've never been, to meet a person I've never met with cash in my pocket. I'm like, this is how episodes of Dateline start. Uh, So obviously, sorry, I know, a little too on the nose. Uh, So obviously, I'm standing here this morning. Things turned out all right. Ryan got the tickets. Uh, Tyler is still alive. The concert I trust was awesome. But on my way to that meetup, I was terrified, and I had what I'll describe now as a crisis of trust, a crisis of trust. See, trust is a funny thing, isn't it? When our trust for someone is high, uh, we will do whatever they ask, go wherever they go, and orient our decisions around whatever they tell us, but trust isn't an automatic thing. Uh, Many of us are naturally skeptical, and trust, in fact, is a fragile thing. It can so easily erode. 
You know, one broken promise, one unmet expectation, and our trust for a person or an institution can vanish. And in that car on my way to that meetup in Chicago, I was overcome with panic because I realized I had no reason to trust this Craigslist seller. I hadn't read the ad. I hadn't interacted with him at all. We'd never met. I had no reason to believe that he was who he says he was or that he would do what he said he would do. I got just terrified and scared on the way there because I wasn't sure that he could be trusted. Now, today we're launching a new mini-series in our ongoing study of Genesis. Starting this Sunday and then for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be working our way through this ancient text with particular focus on the life and story and family of Abraham. Um, And we've titled this mini-series, The Earth Shall Be Blessed, because in many ways God's promises to Abraham, uh, promises of blessing, promises of descendants, promises of land, uh, are going to serve as the foundation for the narrative we're about to engage. And I think that underneath this story of Abraham that we're going to be walking through this summer, underneath all the stories that we'll hear about his faithfulness, his faithlessness, God's faithfulness, underneath all these things is a question that we're going to start examining this morning and a question that is absolutely foundational to our faith. And the question is this, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Or to put it another way, what makes God worthy of our trust? Because we've said it already, when our trust for someone is high, we will do what they ask, we'll go where they'll go, we'll follow them wherever they tell us to go. But trust isn't an automatic thing, and it can be a fragile thing. So can God be trusted? I believe our text this morning offers some insight. So if you haven't already, will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 15? Uh, That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Sherry already read it beautifully, Genesis 15. It's on page 10 of our community Bibles. And while you're turning there, please allow me to set the stage for this morning's narrative. I want to give you a little context because the, the story of Genesis 15, the account we'll read here, actually has its roots in Genesis 11. It's in Genesis 11 that we are introduced to Abram, and we're told that Abram is the son of Terah, the brother of Nahor and Haran, and we're also told that Abram's wife, Sarai, was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, this detail should cause us to pause because this reality, uh, this deep sadness and pain that Abram and his wife experienced as a result of infertility, uh, this is a heavy thing. This is heavy for many in our church. I believe it was heavy for Abram and Sarai. Indeed, my own parents uh, tried seven years to have a child of their own, and I don't ask them often about those days, but when I do, it doesn't take long um, until stories of sadness or pain in the midst of great waiting emerge. And that's where Abram and Sarai were. They had tried and tried to have children, but nothing worked. They remained childless, and so it was all the more astonishing then When God shows up to Abram in Genesis 12 and says, I will make you a great nation. Really, God, how are you going to do that? We haven't been able to have any kids yet. A great nation, lots of people. This is an astounding promise, a promise that Ben walked you through last week. The promises, again, the promises of blessing and land and descendants. If you missed the message last week, I really, I'd encourage you to go back and hear it because it is critical for understanding both Abram and the entire Christian faith. But God makes this huge promise. I'm going to make you a great nation, which leads Abram to take a huge step of faith. And so he leaves his hometown. 
He leaves his father, Terah, and he sets out for Canaan, the land that God promised him. But the journey is not smooth sailing. Uh, First, Abram travels to Egypt, uh, and he makes some poor decisions there, tells some big lies there. You can read more about that in Genesis 12 if you want. Um, And then after that, Abram arrives in Canaan, and he and his nephew Lot, they have to split ways because they've both grown pretty wealthy, and so there's not enough space for all their, you know, cattle and sheep and everything to graze there, and so they have to go two separate directions, and Abram says, I'm going to be here in Canaan, but Lot decides to go settle by a city called Sodom, and so Lot sets up his tents there, Abram's over here, and wouldn't you know it, but right about the time that Lot sets up in Sodom, a big war erupts, And kind of a band of enemies come to fight Sodom. And in the process, they have this big military victory. And they take Lot and his family captive because they won militarily. Now, this makes Abram real mad. So he goes all Liam Neeson. uh, And he gathers hundreds of men. And he tracks down Lot's captors. And he fights them. And he wins the victory. He frees Lot. And he recovers all the goods from Sodom as well as other people who are taken captive as well. So they've taken Abram's nephew. He goes and gets them. He brings them back. They're making their way back to Sodom. And of course, the king of Sodom is overjoyed to see Abram because he's got all these people that were taken captive, and he's reclaimed this wealth that was taken by Sodom's enemies. And so the king tells Abram, why don't you keep the possessions that you recovered in this military thing, right, this Liam Neeson moment, why don't you keep the possessions you recovered as payment for returning these captives? But Abram won't accept the payment. He doesn't want the king of Sodom's money. And he says in Genesis 14, 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. In other words, I've made an oath with God. With God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I want you to think about that for a second. Um, Have any of you ever turned down a large sum of money? I know I haven't. It hasn't been part of my story. Sure, I've told friends that they don't need to pay for my lunch or dinner, uh, but I've never been offered the wealth of a city. I've never been offered uh, thousands of dollars, let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever this would have been. I've never had that kind of offer. What about you? I mean, do you think you'd be able to turn down the extreme wealth of Sodom if someone offered it to you? Don't let this slip by. Abram, because of his trust in God, says no to the king of Sodom's offer to give him the wealth of the city. And it's precisely in this moment, after Abram says no to the king of Sodom's wealth, and it's precisely this moment after Abram's had a military defeat or a military victory, but those guys are still out there and could come back after him, right? It's right in this moment that God speaks to Abram in Genesis 15 and says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and God said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. You see, God shows up and he says, Abram, uh, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about Sodom's enemies coming to retaliate against you. I am your shield. And then God says to Abram, and don't worry about missing out on the king of Sodom's wealth. I will make sure that your reward is very great. He's had the successful military mission. He's declined a great treasure. And God says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And notice Abram's response. 
Abram replies to God, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, God tells Abram, I'm your shield, your reward will be very great. And Abram says, thanks, that sounds nice and all, God, but let's get specific. What, what will you give me? Because you promised me a child four chapters ago, and I've been to Egypt, and I've moved to Canaan, and I've defeated Sodom's enemies, but there's still no child. All I've got is Eleazar of Damascus. He's great and all. We love Eleazar. But God, that's not what you promised. You promised a child. So what are you going to give me, God? Are you finally going to come through? Now, church, I think we've got to stop here for a moment because Abram's response to God in this moment has something to teach us. God speaks to Abram, and Abram replies, and in his reply, he holds nothing back. He says what he's thinking. Abraham gives the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He gets real honest with God. And this isn't the main point of this morning's text. There's some really, really good news coming that's even better than this. But I'm convinced God brought some of you to church this morning so that you could hear this. Uh, You can get real with God. You can get real with God. God isn't put off by honesty. He doesn't require that we approach him with like pre-prepared remarks and smiles on our faces. Uh, You can get real with God. Abram sure does. And the unfortunate reality is somewhere along the way, so many of us, if we've grown up in church, have picked up the idea uh, that we're only allowed to talk to God in polite phrases or moderated tones, right? The idea of being as bold as Abram is here feels offensive to us. But listen to Abram here. Or read the Psalms. Or read Lamentations. And you will find a rich tradition in our faith of honest prayers from people with abiding faith who get real with God, who name their frustrations and anger and sadness, and they do so precisely because they have great faith in God, not because their faith is lacking. I mean, know this, God invites your real emotions, your honest words, your hard questions. So if you've been keeping anger or hurt, or frustration, or complaints, or doubts out of your prayers this morning. May you hear an invitation to follow Abram. May you feel permission to get real with God. I mean, notice this. This is incredible. God doesn't strike Abram down for his honesty. In fact, he responds I mean, in other words, I feel like Abram's honesty here actually results in greater intimacy with God. Because he's able to pour out his heart honestly, God comes back in a real tender moment and sues, and we see it next. So Abram, he gets real. He says, what are you going to give me? Because I've got some doubts, God. You haven't come through on what you've promised already, and now you're going to promise something else. And so God responds in verse 4. He says, this man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood shall be your heir. And then he brings Abram outside and he shows him all the stars in the sky. And he says, Abram, look at these stars in the sky. Your descendants will be as numerous as these stars. Again, it's a real tender moment. I think it's a tender moment built on Abram's bold honesty. And then in verse 7, the conversation continues. God says, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
So in verse 4, God reaffirms you're going to have a descendant. It's not going to be Eleazar. You'll have these descendants. I haven't forgotten about that promise. And now here in verse 7, God's saying again, hey, I'm that same God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and I'm going to give you land to possess. So he's reaffirming the promise of land here in verse 7. And yet again, Abram responds with real chutzpah. He says, okay, Lord, but how am I to know that I will possess it? It's like he's saying, God, look, I know, I know I'm here now, but I've just seen conflict and war come through this area. In this region, land can be yours today and gone tomorrow. So how am I to know that I will possess this land? And in response, the Lord says something that at first strikes us as peculiar. He says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. All right, say what? Uh, it's like, God, I thought we were talking about your seemingly unmet promises, and now you want to judge a 4-H competition. Uh, but hear this. What's about to happen in Scripture is vitally, vitally important. Um, to both the story that we're about to see here this morning, I mean, the text we're unfolding today, but to the entire narrative of Scripture. This is a critical text in the biblical story. These barnyard animals serve a great purpose, which is why... I brought some friends with me uh, this morning, and so if you'll allow me to introduce them to you, uh, God said, bring me a heifer, right? Oh, I know, right? It's going to be so sad when they get killed. Uh, a heifer, <laughs> a goat, is this the goat, right, and the ram? I need help. Okay, okay, the goat, the ram, so heifer, goat, ram, um, going to have to hold all these, a pigeon, and a dove, right? So we've got all five. So God says, bring me these five things. Now, it might be unclear to us what God is doing in this moment, but Abram knew exactly what was happening. You see, God is inaugurating a covenant ceremony, a covenant ceremony. And as a wealthy businessman, Abram would have recognized this immediately because in the ancient world, this was how you made a significant agreement. There was no kind of like, you know, screens you click through the user agreement and just like, whatever, I didn't read it, agree. Um, there's no e-leases to sign. When a serious agreement had to be made in the ancient world, you had a covenant ceremony and you made a blood covenant. And here's how it worked. Uh, generally, a covenant would be drawn between two people, kind of a greater party and a lesser party. So someone with, you know, more wealth and privilege, maybe the person you're borrowing money from, um, and someone with less wealth and privilege. So you get this covenant. The person with greater status would make the terms of the covenant. Right? They'd set out what the terms are. And then they'd ensure that the necessary animals were procured. And they'd bring the animals to a meaning place. And they'd line them all up. All right, so that's what we'll do for that. Um, and then they would cut them in half, right? And they, oh, guys, I'm not that monster. Oh, uh, no. But so you'd cut the animals in half, and you'd create a kind of tunnel. So think like maybe a dance tunnel at a wedding, you know, or something. So create a tunnel with the two split pieces of the animal on either side and the blood flowing down the middle, right? Can you picture it? So this is what would happen. So greater party, split it in half, cut the two, two sides of an animal on either side, blood in the middle like a runway tunnel, right? And then the blood of the animals would flow down the path. And then what would happen is the greater party would walk through the tunnel first. And some blood would splash on their sandals and maybe get on their robes. And by walking through the tunnel, what they were saying is, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, may this too be my fate. 
right, if I don't live up to what I've pledged here, we're making a blood covenant. We've gone to an elaborate extent. We've killed animals. I mean, this is food. This is property. This is a big deal. We've gone to the elaborate means to show if I don't follow through on this covenant, this is how serious I am. May this too, what's happened to these animals, may this be my fate. So the greater party would walk through first. Then the lesser party would walk through after. And then ta-da, you've got a covenant. You've got a binding agreement that cannot be revoked. Do you follow? So this is what happens when Abram says, how will I know that I can get the landlord? God says, okay, let's do a blood covenant. Let's do the most serious agreement that exists in the ancient world. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and a pigeon, and a dove, and let's do the deed. Let's split them in half. And he establishes a covenant with Abraham. He makes the most dramatic and high-stakes commitment possible in the ancient world. But it gets even better. This is super cool. So notice what happens. Uh, we see it now in Genesis 15, verse 12. So as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Now this phrase, deep sleep here, this isn't saying that like Abram's exhausted after a day of splitting animals. Uh, this is, I'm sorry, that was a crude one. I saw things, I saw it in your face. Uh, it, this is saying that Abram, a deep sleep, this particular Hebrew language for deep sleep is more idiomatic for like a vision, right? So Abram, they've done the whole deed and now Abram's falling into this deep sleep. He's having a vision and that's even this clarifying phrase, this dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This is a heavy vision. This is like a real spiritual vision that Abram's having. And then we find out what's in the vision in verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So Abram has a vision, and in that vision it's that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the slaughtered and split animal. Now we already know that I love props, I'm a sucker for stuffed animals, but I am also a sucker for pyrotechnics. So we've got a smoking fire pot, this is a birthday cake scented candle that was left at my apartment. Uh, but I won't lie to in case anyone has scented candle issues, right? So smoking fire pot, flaming torch, right? We've got both of them. And so here's what happened. Abraham has this vision. A smoking fire pot passes through the animals, and it's followed by a flaming torch. Now, what you need to understand is that the smoking fire pot represents God. In Exodus 19:18, the text says that Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it. And in Exodus 20:18, uh, the people of Israel saw lightning flash and mountain kind of smoke when Moses is on Sinai, right? This smoke is at the top of the mountain signifying God's presence there with Moses. So smoking fire pot represents God's presence in smoke. That's what Abram's seeing in this vision. Throughout the entire Old Testament, smoke is a symbol of God's presence and power. So this represents God's presence walking through the animals, but the blazing torch also represents God's presence. Because in Exodus 3, 2, the Lord speaks to Moses out of what? A burning bush. And in Exodus 13, 12, when God's leading the people of Israel, they talk about God leading him by a pillar of fire. So the smoking fire pot represents God, and the blazing torch represents God, which means, and this is the good part of this morning's text, this is the big idea that gets me so excited to share it with you. Here's the really good part. This is why God can be trusted, which means that in Genesis 15, God walks through the animals, and then God walks through again. 
He sets the term of the agreement. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land to inherit. And then God walks through the animals, not once, but twice. He commits to upholding his promise unilaterally by engaging the most elaborate and serious covenant ceremony known to the ancient world. God says, I'm so committed to my promise, Abram, that if I don't follow through, may this be my fate. And if you, Abram, are nervous that you might do something to make me change my mind, I'm going to walk through the animals again so that you can know that you're off the hook that I'm the only one whose life is on the line. I've made a big promise, Abram, I know that, but I'm not going back on it. I and I alone am responsible for it. I'm not making you walk the path of blood. This is my covenant. I'm keeping it. I'm going to walk through twice. Now, church, this is absolutely huge because this is not how we make commitments, is it? I mean, we avoid commitments. This is like the generational talent of the millennials. We are so good at speaking in non-committal terms about what our plans are or, or whether or not we'll be somewhere. We want to leave our options open. We're not sure how we are going to feel Friday night or Saturday afternoon. So we say we'd love to be there because we would love to be there, but maybe we won't be there, right? I mean, we're so good at not making commitments. That's what we do, isn't it? We, we avoid commitments and we leave ourselves loopholes. We leave ourselves loopholes. Well, sure, if we do commit to something, we want to leave an escape hatch, and an exit clause. There's always a way to back out, usually triggered by the behaviors of others, right? I commit to doing this, but then if you change a little bit, then I've got, you know, I've got to weigh out this back door. But that's not what God does here. He puts himself on the hook. He makes the strongest possible commitment if Genesis 15 teaches us anything, it's this. It's that God will die before he breaks a promise. And those of us who live in 2019, those of us who have seen the rest of the biblical story, uh, we know that that is exactly what God did in light of his covenant with Abraham. We know that that's true. Because God did fulfill his promise to Abram, both initially in Isaac, and we're going to hear all about that in the weeks to come, keep coming back but ultimately through Jesus Christ. When God himself came to earth and did die, died a death that he did not deserve so that we, the humans we, he created, might have new life, life with him, life as it was made to be lived so that all the earth really could be blessed. Right? Just as God made promises to Abram, promises sealed by a blood covenant, God has made promises sealed in Christ's blood to each and every one of us. And those promises can be trusted because God can be trusted. You see, there are many things God has not promised us. He hasn't promised us a pain-free life or easy relationships or perfect health or frictionless work. But these are promises he has made. And these promises are faithful and true. In 1 John 1.9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? This is a promise from God. This can be trusted. If we confess our sins, it's already been paid for in Christ's blood. That covenant has been made. God is faithful to forgive us. And in Romans 8, we find there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Absolutely none. If you are in Christ, you don't stand condemned. You are free and blameless. God promises that. 
This echoes what we hear from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 34, where he's speaking as God, saying, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. God promises that for those who put their faith in him, that are part of Christ, that are covered in that blood, God will choose not to remember our bad deeds. In Philippians 1, 6, we hear that he who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. God promises to finish the good transforming work that he is doing in your life. And in Colossians 3, 23 through 24, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God promises to reward us for the good work we do in his name. And God has taken the entire cost of those promises upon himself. And that's why we can trust him because he hasn't avoided making commitments to us. And he hasn't left himself any loopholes. Indeed, these promises and more were sealed in his own blood on a cross 2,000 years ago. You can trust God because God will die before he breaks a promise. You can trust God because God has died and he's risen again and he extends to you as he extended to Abram promises of forgiveness and transformation and new life. And these are promises that can be trusted. Church, this is fantastic news. This is at the heart of what it means to have faith in God. This is what sets Christianity apart. That we have a God who has made a binding agreement with us that can be trusted, and he has taken all the cost upon himself. This is incredibly unique. This is what love looks like. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God in this way and that it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. He put his faith in God. He says, I'm all in with you, God. Abram believed God. He believed the Lord. What about you? What about you? Will you join me in prayer? Oh, man, Lord, I know that it is uh, so easy for me to lose trust in you. Uh, for me to feel like you can't be trusted, that you've uh, in some way let me down or that I've done something that has totally let you down and now our, our relationship is broken and can never come back, God. May you, um, may you redirect me in those moments. May you remind me of your faithfulness. May you remind me of your self-giving love. May you remind me of the covenant you made both to Abram and the covenant you made with us on the cross, God of your bloodshed, of your saying, I'll take the payment. I'm on the hook for it all. I love you that much. I'm going to bless you that much. I want the best for you that much as my created being, that I'll do whatever it takes to ensure that you live life as I've designed it to be lived, that you live life with me and with others in community according to, according to my plan. God, I, I so easily lose trust in you. We so easily lose trust in you. Lord, may you build our faith in you this morning. May this true account of your relationship with Abram and the covenant that you made with him remind us and inspire us and reinvigorate our own faith in you and our own trust for you. We ask this now in your powerful name. Amen.